to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always enjoys a nice, rich cup of coffee brewed the perfect way at just there at 2 a.m., 2, 3 a.m., mm-hmm. just the pick-me-up we need. <laughs> we got podcast outlines to do, Amanda. Late. Right. Right. Yeah. At 2 a.m., and we want to make sure that we're up for the rest of the night, so. <laughs> now, I don't want to be crass, and I don't want to... I don't want to be rude, so I immediately have to pull back on this joke and say that only one of us is reasonably sleep-deprived. I sleep fine. <laughs> I get eight <laughs> hours every night. My body sleeps like a stone. I sleep, as the expression goes, like the dead. <laughs> oh, I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you if you want to throw any shade, now's the time. I will, not, I will no longer indulge in any jokes about sleep. <laughs> to some people that's just that the humor is just kind of day class a you know it's just not not acceptable humor oh it's fine uh i mean i have to drink the coffee at 2 a.m because you yep. know uh, <laughs> that's when i'm awake i guess you, you got to keep the brain just <laughs> pumping you got to keep the gears grinding you got to keep the machine and turned on basically so mm-hmm. i respect mm-hmm. that i understand it uh, or at least in principle i understand it i certainly don't in application <laughs> If you have no idea why we're wondering and musing and thinking about 2 a.m. coffee, it is because you have found a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes on a book we're currently reading. Uh, Today's episode will be on The City in the City, which is a novel by a name I did not look up how to pronounce because I'm terrible about this. It's I'm going to go with China Mieville. Do you know how the accent of E goes? Yeah, okay. I think it's Mieville. Mieville. The the E in uh, first E in his last name, M-I-E, that has an accent. So I think it's Mieville. Again, it's a novel called The City in the City. If you've never checked out our podcast before, welcome. You're in a pretty good place to start. This is, again, a book club episode. Um, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We have accounts up on both under the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So just check us out there under that handle. We post updates and reminders of what we're reading and covering, and you know we promote the books and do some drawings and stuff it's a good time on there so follow us there and yeah book club episodes they're going to be spoiler filled they're going to be analytical it's going to be us kind of breaking down the work discussing everything that happened in it in this case it'll be the first half since this is part one hopefully you notice that if you clicked on the episode so yeah we'll be discussing the first half of the novel that's chapters one through 13 any content warnings you can think of amanda but i don't think so i mean there's yeah. murder yeah but, and violence I mean. <laughs> but it's it's yeah i don't even know if we'll quote that stuff i mean the premise of the book is a murder investigation so that's all i could think of too and it's that's about as light of a content warning for murders you can give because the the murder does not happen in the book <laughs> right. it's just the yeah. the effects of it are seen yeah um any general thoughts i guess we should throw it over to you before we start anything broadly before we dig into this book uh, no, I'm I'm enjoying it so far. I, I, it's mm-hmm. kind of refreshing considering the last book we read. So yeah, that is true. Which will <laughs> go unnamed. If you're listening to this uh, podcast, listener, then just go check the feed, and you can you can deduce with your own detective work what we read last. And yeah, it is it was not good. This has been okay, uh, if not pretty good. I will talk about in the early chapters some of my struggles with it. But yes, on the whole, I'm enjoying this a good amount for sure. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's dive into our book club 
then get to analyzing. We chunk it up by chapter groups, and so we'll discuss the book, summarize, and then do our kind of analysis as we go. We'll go in order of the story, so let's get started. Uh, Chapters one through three. This novel opens Amanda with a murder. This is a full-on detective story. (laughs) Uh, At least it's a suspicious death, if not a murder. Uh, There's a detective, and so... I'm going to keep this in, obviously, because my struggles on the pod need to be well documented. But these names, man, (laughs) Uh, this is a a fictional Eastern European location where the story takes place in the city in the city. And a lot of the names are influenced by the languages in that area, I have to assume. But man, I'm not going to pronounce these names well. We we just have to decide on some of these like right away. So, for example, the the detective's name, Theodore, I feel good about the first name because that's kind of got a Russian influence to it. What about the mm-hmm. last name? What are you going with? I, in my mind, I've been... It, it's been Borlu. Borlu. Okay, I'm going to go with Borlu, which is an Americanized version, slightly different. But yes, okay, because I've been... In my head, it's been Borlu. So mm-hmm. I'll let you do the, the slight, you know, little accent work you did there. But yes, okay. So Theodore, <laughs> Detective Theodore Borlu, who is in, again, an Eastern European city called... Here's Stopping Point 2. What are you going with here? <laughs> in my head, I've been saying Bazel. Okay, yeah. There is actually a joke that I didn't bother to check the page number and reread, but there's... There's a joke about how some Americans show up and they don't pronounce it correctly. So I think through that, I could have backwards (laughs) infer, you know, I could have like deduced what the actual pronunciation is. But as an uh, arrogant American myself, I didn't. (laughs) I just kept calling it. I'm going to go with Bizell. Uh, That's what I've been doing in my head. So I'll go with Bizell. Uh, Spelled B-E-S-Z-E-L. So anyway, so he's a detective in the city. Uh, Thanks to a tip from some kind of meddlesome and drugged out teens, he picks up this murder case. There's a woman who's been presumably killed and she's kind of hidden behind some mattresses or she's back in an alleyway kind of tucked away. Uh, There's no identity right away. They give her like a, a, what, like a nom de plume or I don't know what the term would be, but they give her a little term because they don't know who she is. They can't identify her. Then the, de- the department, police department, which I think is called Extreme Crimes. It's got some odd name. Yeah, Ex- I think it's Extreme, extreme Crimes. Extreme Crimes. Yeah. And so the department with Borlu suspect she's a murdered prostitute, but they aren't certain. And the clues for that assumption seem kind of shady. That's just where they start the investigation from. Uh, then we meet uh, Borlu's sort of assistant detective, kind of a partner in this, almost like a holmes watson thing they make that joke later and i'm gonna go with corwee are you going with corwee on this one yep that's how it was in my mind yeah okay so we're going with corwee is the name of that person that's again his assistant she is vulgar and energetic and swears in just about every line of her dialogue so she's a good time (laughs) (laughs) she's the classic strung out detective archetype i guess if that's an archetype then there's a break in the case so they end up locating the van that this woman unknown woman was dumped from they were able to get that i believe on video i couldn't quite remember how they got the van connection was it video uh, no the video comes later that's they a different the, how did they get yeah. the van how did they know with the van they know it uh, because the strung out teenagers <laughs> tell them uh, okay. saw yeah they were like well we saw this gotcha. van come and then it left and then it came back and then it left again yeah perfect yeah okay and yeah, there is a crucial video later. We'll get to that. So yes, either way, they ID the van. They trace that back to Mikhail, who is a delivery man, who claims that the van was stolen just days before this murder and just days before she was dumped from the van. And he just never reported it. Didn't feel like he should. Didn't feel like he needed to. That story actually kind of checks out. And so our detective team is suspicious, but he's not a suspect. And they're kind of left just with this still pretty vague or ambiguous case. Where should we start with the opening? I will say, I alluded to this earlier, 
I my pitch for this book it, when we do our recommendation is basically going to be if you can make it to the committee meeting, I think this book is going to be worth it. I struggled enormously at the start of this book, which I think is oh, yeah? kind of the point. I guess, I guess I'll do my quote first. Because up to this point, I haven't said the major crux, the major like sci-fi fantasy premise of this whole dang thing, right? Like it's it kind of alludes to it a lot, but doesn't really explain that mm-hmm. this is like a parallel worlds kind of story. But it's parallel worlds that have been bureaucratized and kind of systematized. Uh, this is the only place it seems on Earth that has a parallel city existing alongside it, and in the city of. Um, Shoot, I already forgot we're going with a Bezel. <laughs> Bezel. In the city of <laughs> yeah. Bezel, there is another city, Ul Quoma. Are you going with Ul Ul or Ul? Yeah. Ul Quoma. That yeah. exists right alongside it in the same time period, and you can travel between them, and we'll get into all the technicalities. But until they laid that out really clearly in the committee meeting with like, okay, I kind of get there's factions now. I kind of get the relationship at least a little. They actually start to explain some of the just logistics. I was like, okay, I'm on board. But man, this early part, I was like, oh no, did I pick another? I mean, this book would have been a disaster in a very different way than the previous one, that's for sure. But I really mm-hmm. thought for a hot minute at the start that I like picked a real dud. And I and I <laughs> liked it, the other novel I read by China Mieville too. So I was, I don't know, it really, I was very put off by the opening. I did not like it. Yeah, the, at first I was like, I had to kind of reread a little bit because I was like, wait, wait, what what's happening right now? But... I will say that I was, um, I remembered why this book was, um, suggested to me. It was, um, suggested to me by, um, a couple of our friends, actually, um, Sophia and Pete. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, Pete had told me a little bit of the premise, which is that I remembered. I was like, oh, that's right. It's a city inside of the city. Like, there's yeah. a, a lot of, like, weirdness with that so i i kept that in mind as i was reading so that helped me out a little bit but yeah on 25 i've pulled quotes to illustrate my issue because before this is explained it's like what the hell is going on and i meville gets like favorable comparisons to kind of absurdist or strange writers like uh, who's the guy i'm thinking of who did like the guy transforms into the bug story Kafka. Um, Kafka. And so he yeah. gets comparisons to him. So he's playing with some of this reality bending, you know, it's not hard sci-fi for sure. But here's a couple of paragraphs to illustrate. And this quote says, In the morning, trains ran on a raised line meters from my window. They were not in my city. I did not, of course, but I could have stared into the carriages. They were quite that close and caught the eyes of foreign travelers. And so, like, before you're told, it's like, what? <laughs> the, the, what's going on? Like, where do you live? And then later on that same page, it says, it was a couple kilometers to ECS base. I walked. I walked by the brick arches. At the top where the lines were, they were elsewhere, but not all of them were foreign at their bases. The ones I could see contained little shops and squats decorated in art graffiti. In Bazel, it was a quiet area, but the streets were crowded with those elsewhere. I unsaw them, but it took time to pick past it all before i had reached my turning point on via kamir yazek had called my mobile we found the van like it i almost yeah i mean it's tough because it's it's obviously immersive i think he's playing at this on purpose i think he is messing with the reader and the whole point is that living in this place is disorienting and requires a ton of kind of mental fortitude which they'll get we'll explore that later but those moments just like 
I don't know. I just needed a primer, I think. I And maybe, you know how it is with reading, when you read something a little more dense or that requires more. Maybe I just wasn't trying hard enough or paying enough attention, but I was really frustrated pretty much up until, what is the meeting, page 50 or 60, which... That's, I guess, a tough ask of readers out there. But that's, yeah, now that I look back at those quotes, it's it's building to something. It's drawing very purposeful comparisons and setting this this kind of unpredictable, transitory existence, this kind of unsettled mood. So I do like a lot of what it's doing, but oof, I was not connecting to it until later. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um My thing that I, I enjoyed was was that it, everything is kind of subtle. He's, he doesn't... Yeah really he does a couple of times like outright explain certain aspects um specifically like how he was able to cross over and stuff yeah, yeah. to Oklahoma later um and at first i was just kind of what is what am i reading and then i was like you know actually i really enjoy that there's not a whole lot of like exposition here and then yeah. we kind of have to figure it out on our own and it's, and it's just yeah. an interesting mind play it's comforting to of. know now of course being halfway through that it all turns out fine it's clear i understand everything (laughs) i'm not confused (laughs) and so you don't have to be some hyper aware you don't have to be close reading this with the most elite uh hyper awareness that you have to yes that you're gonna understand it and so anyway that's um that's my my early thought anything from part one you want to discuss uh yeah i just i um coming off of the the last book that was more of like you know tell don't show and this one being more of you know a lot more of the the subtleties and stuff what i I really appreciated when i first opened this up and i started reading was actually the description of death and what a dead body really is like without him being graphic but it was just i thought that the descriptions were really great so i'm just gonna read real quick um This is from the very first page here. She lay near the skate ramps. Nothing is still like the dead are still. The wind moves their hair as it moved hers, and they don't respond at all. She was in an ugly pose with legs crooked as if about to get up. Her arms in a strange bend. Her face was to the ground. Just the the image of, like, how still the body is and then the the wind moving it, but it's, like, but there's no reaction because you don't even think about, oh, yeah, when the wind... You know, you you automatically, like, might move your hair or you might, mm-hmm. um, you know, scrunch up your nose or something. But it, the stillness there, I just thought that the way that Mieville, and he goes on to, desc- there's other instances of him de- describing the dead body. But in each one, it's just like the little details like that that I really appreciated. And I, and I was like, okay, I think that I'm going to enjoy this book. Yeah, it's restrained. I think this book could have, if it wanted a mood kind of 10 times grimier than it does. Like it, it obviously teases out that Bazell is maybe a bit more hard up and downtrodden than Ul Cuoma, but it's really yeah. taking its time, which I yep. think you just yep. got to respect And it. The things it's trying to do with some of the politics and some of the kind of economic differences and cultural divides. Honestly, I mean, I, I part of me wishes it had been, it's been a little more explicit, but I think, you know, the subtleties, the, the style and, it's been rewarding enough just kind of in its plot to get keep me going, I guess. Yeah. Um, though I, I could have used... I don't know. I feel like in the other novel, again, of his I read, he flexed a little more than he's flexing in this one, but I, signs of maturity, and it's definitely intriguing on its on its own merits. So, mm-hmm. Next yep. uh, next section? Yeah. So the next two chapters. Uh, <clears throat> Borlu receives a phone call from Ulcoma. 
Cuomo, Cuomo, which is almost breach. Oh, yeah, breach is super bad. How many times did <laughs> they say breach before they had to find it? I think that was another one that almost <laughs> broke me. A term that gets used 30,000 times before it's defined. And even now it's not really defined. <laughs> it's, it's an entity. It's a thing almost. Um, yeah. <clears throat> breach is super bad and means that whoever is in breach is somehow acknowledging the existence of the other city. Anyway, the mis- the mystery caller knew the victim as Maria. Borlu is worried about the case now as he doesn't want to get in trouble, but he pursues the case anyway and sends Corwi to find the Unificationists, and I think the name says it all there. Yeah. <clears throat> they find out that Maria, who the Unificationist informant Droden knows as Bayela Mar, was interested in doing some research, but made the other Unificationists upset as she was researching Orsini, which is a fabled third city, because two cities in one is not enough. Um, yeah, this one is the one that's unproven. It's a myth. Right. It's a fable. It's They, it's they go into some tale. scholarship that there's one person who pursued it, but he was he's become kind of a pariah, because it's not considered legitimate. Mm-hmm. So. Bowden. Yeah. Um, we find out that the city was once just one city, but somehow the cities cleaved and became separate countries that exist side by side, as well as within each city. There are alternating areas, crosshatch areas, and then completely one-sided areas. Mm-hmm. Um, Orsini supposedly exists within the areas that the other two cities have forgotten or ignored. After some back and forth about whether to hand over the case, Borlu decides to continue working the case until he hands it over and has Corwi looking into whether the victim visited Okoma. And she has. Yeah, she's researching there, which I guess we'll get into later. Yeah. This is, uh, should we dive into Breach? <laughs> we finally get yeah, some like, concrete info. <laughs> this is, again, I think part of partially the clarification on this started to turn me around in the, in the positive sense. Uh, though at this point, some of the more, some of the factions were becoming clear, some of the politics, because this is clearly going to be dealing with, you know, governmental issues and border issues and all that. I think be, that stuff becoming clearer helped. But yeah, there's definitely some interesting stuff about Breach. From page 52, I've got an example here I'll read. <clears throat> it says, here, though, at the building, not just my colleagues, but the powers of breach, which is capitalized, by the way, <laughs> were always wrathful and as Old Testament as they had the powers and right to be. That terrible presence might appear and disappear a unificationist for even a somatic breach, a startled jump at a misfiring Ul Cuomo car. If Bela Falana had been breaching, that's the dead woman, she would have brought that in. So it was likely not suspicion of that specifically that made Droden afraid. So you know that you can transition between these two places, but you also learned quickly that doing so basically gets you instantly killed. By what entity or how, it only kind of explains it later, but even then it's obscure. No one really wants to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's some shadowy figure it's weird because we do see well see quote unquote um an agent of breach later but Mm -hmm. like nobody actually like sees him or they're so trained to unsee that it's you know they don't see him properly it's it's Mm -hmm. a strange situation yeah as the quotes i gave from the first part show it's kind of an active it has to be an active part of your life if you live here to avoid this to avoid thinking about it contemplating it you know avoid running into people maybe even but apparently it's it's a you know if it is a god it it is a generous somewhat 
that's the word I'm looking for, forgiving, I guess, God. And um, yeah, at least in some regards, it's not always going to just insta kill everyone who makes a mistake, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, we, we suspect, we think. Yeah, well, they they are very careful not to invoke breach too. They, that's like, that's the thing about um, Borlu too is he's he kind of is almost afraid to invoke breach in the case, um, but ultimately he decides to. Um, yeah, they they do yeah, try and it's, dodge it for a while. Yeah, it's like the, uh, almost a fear of handing over that power to breach. It's it's strange. Breach both referenced as an entity and action. A, a verb, I guess I said action, uh, a noun, a group, <laughs> a committee decision. It's not, yeah, I think, I know that Mieville's got an academic background, I think. There might be some linguistics to his background. I didn't do my research for this one. And I think he's playing with the language there very purposefully. It's, again, it's got that vagueness, that slow immersion into the world, and it feels very purposeful to me, if not frustrating, but but interesting, too. Anything you picked up here? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, language. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) She's laughing. Um, uh, I I found the the language interesting because um, when Borlu talks to the the, the informant in El Coma... She... Sorry, she. They're both men. Um, Mm -hmm. He makes the the guy from Ulcoma says like oh no we can we can speak in Bez and he is like the it's the what did he say yep. on page thirty five it says it's the same damn faced language anyway yeah but which I thought was interesting and I was like oh that makes sense because you know they're like they used to be one city and they're all in the same area however later on page forty one. Uh, Borlu says that actually they're very different languages. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, and then later on page 42, it says that they have the same root language. So I just, for me, I was like kind of, okay, so then does it sound the same? Does it not sound the same? Is it they don't sound the same because they're making it seem like it's not the same? Because if they were the same, then it would be breach. Um, yeah. So I think that for me, I would have enjoyed seeing like an example of what a word would be in Ulcoma that was also in, in, in beds or something like that so that I could... But I guess he keeps that also just purposefully vague so that we are asking ourselves these questions like, is it that different? Yeah, <laughs> and later when he meets a detective from Oklahoma, we're again spoiling the first half of this book. So that's, you know, if you're on for the ride, you're on. But yeah, he ends up working with one and, and even then he speaks in their language, which, which is Illitan or Illitan. Yeah, Illitan. Illitan. Yeah. And so even then he seems to think it can kind of transfer, but Corwy can't do it. For or Corey has like limited use, it seems, and they switch to English at some point for her. I, I don't. Yeah, it's. I think again, it's purposefully not laying out specifics at every turn. It's it's a slow burn kind of a read, in the world building at least. So, which is that nice. I so. like that. <laughs> I enjoy else? that. Yeah. Anything else from this section? Um, I just thought that it was interesting that he said uh, Bards invented that third, the pretend existing Orsini. And I was like, Bards? What? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That word caught me. I was like, oh, okay. Well, part of the the language in this does feel 
almost translated in a way. Obviously, this is written in English, as those are made up languages and places. But yeah, so it's it is interesting. There's a line on 53. It says the few streets that he's around. It says he says mongrel names, illitant sounds, and a bezes suffix. Yulstainstras, Lilligitstras, and so on. Is that similar to what you read earlier? It kind of feels the same. Anyway, but that's yeah. Those are the kinds of things that again make the writing immersive and interesting, but. Until you're really clear on the factions, the splits, the what's the unseeing means, I do think it's overwhelming. Um, or at least well, it partially was. It's good to good to be thorough and check. Um, let's jump to chapter six and seven next. Borlu is finally able to present to the joint committee of Old Cuoma and Bezel, and maybe some other intermediaries. I think it's just those two cities. City-states? I mean, Old Cuoma has to be kind of a city-state because... As far as we know, in the other universe, there's no, there are no, there's no like other Earth. <laughs> it's just old Cuoma, right? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. They're just different nations. Yeah, they, they say they say yeah. weird phrases that again, I think the book is made up called they, the one they love is gross topically, which basically just yeah. means <laughs> it's the same physical space, but also it's not. It's just that's where the cities overlap so another thing that you just have to immerse yourself into he again loves you know using language in these immersive world building ways so yeah they are gross topically the same (laughs) topographically i guess anyway there's a joint committee and it's a pretty big one 20 or so people and they are the committee you have to go to to invoke breach as we've said a million times which and we also (laughs) again can't really define there is some slight debate around the table about the evidence that they have uh particularly notably from cider or cedar who is a bazel nationalist so it's basically like each country or city state city has nationalists and then there's unificationists so it's kind of these three different factions and they all have different agendas um so there is some disagreement about this whether it's a breach case but they do decide to invoke it there's a pretty clear-headed person i forget who who they even are but there's somebody who's just kind of like yeah that's all well and good but this is pretty clearly a case that she breached so we're gonna do it um there's a lot implied again at this stage but it seems like a an omnipotent force that will just automatically be able to hunt down the murderers as soon as they are invoked or called upon it's un- everything's unclear it's unclear how they would do it it's unclear how they ask for this to happen it's unclear who they go to it's just, everything's unclear <laughs> we just know that it's gonna they're gonna kill the murderers like instantaneously somehow um, we are then treated to a really important memory of borlu uh, that he has rather because it's the first time he saw a breach used in person, and it does sure seem terrifying, but it's also very tidy and fast. It seems kind of like a ghost smoke creature comes down. It can also speak. Did you catch that later? Yes. It speaks to one of the cops at some point, I think. It tells him to, like, wait or go somewhere or something, so... It's an entity that thinks and communicates. Um, but anyway, so we, we finally see a case of breach. And meanwhile, the detectives, the detectives rather, sorry, welcome the Gary or Geary family. At this point, we've learned that the woman's name who's been murdered, it's Mahalia Geary, who is from America, actually. So her parents come to Bazell from America. They are there to make preparations and to travel to Ulquoma. The family, especially the father, is eager to go to Ulquoma, where Mahalia was studying uh, archaeology, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Among other things, but or anthropology. Yeah, she's there to do a dig. She's there for a dig site, which we'll I'm sure we'll chat about. The detectives talk with the parents, and the parents are eager about, for example, using the death penalty (laughs) and the procedures invoking. Basically, they want to know like, what is breach? Are these people going to die? Will we get to know who they are? You know, are we going to figure this out? And so there's also discussion. Um, as the detectives are curious, they ask about the daughter's early studies in Orsini and her kind of provocative early life as an academic. So a little bit more is revealed about her, her background and her interests. She was, again, studying Orsini, that third city that's unknown, a myth, and then also had kind of she had caused some she'd stirred some things up in her early academic life. What do you want to start with here? Um, I just um before we get into to breach, just um, just a quick little nice example of his subtlety in writing. Um, and it's on page seventy five. It said, "Grief made them look stupid. It was cruel." So here, this is. I thought it was interesting because um, the idea of like grief making somebody look stupid, like you know, they're. They're just so sad, but their mouths are open. They're like, they're also doing things that seem irrational and stuff like that. That's such a great, I guess, like description that Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of. Um, And it was also the next sentence that followed was, it was cruel. And I found that interesting because is it the grief that is cruel or is it the the not knowing that is cruel? Is it the The invocation of breach that is? Yeah. So I thought that ambiguity was well played there Um, i think um, i liked it yeah i think i read that as kind of the cruelty of the situation or the the cruelty of the i don't know how life progresses or something yeah it's do you think he's writing detective fiction well it comes with its own baggage and expectations is this the kind of hardened pragmatism you want out of your detectives i like that line you chose definitely yeah i i do like this this character as a detective have you you have not read any uh raymond chandler right not that i can remember no i think you've brought him up before yeah so that kind of detective fiction i'm i i really enjoy and um like the hard-nosed character but they have like heart and they're very moral um and hard-working like that kind of uh trope i suppose i i do enjoy that yeah and it's i think He's going to be an interesting guide because we see in a later scene, uh, he meaning the the narrator, the the detective. I've, I'm forgetting all the names already. Yeah, Borlu. I was I was going to say Bezel, and I was like, no, that's the city. No, <laughs> Borlu. He he does kind of step up and snipes at some people later. Some nationalists, some some Bezelian 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 nationalists, and so he's got kind of a hardness to him, a sarcastic edge. He seems kind of intelligent kind of a nose to the grindstone detective but and doesn't i don't know he doesn't seem deeply political to me yet either right mm-hmm. right he keeps saying that he's not political right and that he right. specifically does not get involved in politics he seems to get along well when we get into little coma too so far i mean obviously there's there's got to be some tension that the narrative pulls out eventually there but he definitely mm-hmm. opens it pretty pretty calmly yeah right yeah, yeah. and so i i like the tonality they've struck with him yeah, it's not yeah. too heavy-handed, I guess, which is nice. It, it, detective fiction can often be so the person's so overly grizzled and so beaten down, yeah. and this guy's just kind of living a quiet life in a city he knows is 
a bit of a tough dump but is fine <laughs> it's not that's the yeah. other thing i'm appreciating is it's not some gotham city good lord it's <laughs> it's always raining and oh, it's dreary it's just like it's like a kind of shabby city but it's fine yeah so yeah. yeah that's um that's it let's talk breach then shall we let's do it critical quotes here about (laughs) breach and let's talk about how he kind of unveils this action scene of breach this is when detective borlo again first saw it it's when he's 14 he says had the van righted the bazelle drivers would have responded traditionally to such an intrusive foreign obstacle one with the or sorry one of the inevitable difficulties of living in a crossed hatch city um so i guess so I, i guess i underrated that earlier so there must be multiple places like this huh says in crosshatch cities I, I guess i've just been so focused on this world building of this place that i assumed there were no other cities like this also it's suggested later when the americans come that like everyone wants to know about this place and how breach works i guess i was just reading that as this is the only place in the world like it but yeah i guess there's others right crosshatch cities so we'll think about that later, I guess. Um, when an old Quoman yeah. stumbles into a Bez, each in their own city, if an old Quoman's dog runs up and sniffs a Bez passerby, a window broken in old Quoman that leaves glass in the path of Bez pedestrians, in all cases the Bez or old Quomans in the converse circumstances, avoid the foreign difficulty as best they can without acknowledging it, touch it if they must, though not as better, such polite, stoic, unsensing is the form for dealing with protubs, that is, or protubs, I'm assuming that's perturbed or something um, that is the bez for those oh yeah there it is protuberances from the other city there's an illitent term too but i do not know it so let's pause there a lot of world building anything interesting jump out because we learned that's like that's the kind of paragraph where the first part of the book doesn't give you that kind of stuff <laughs> which you need yeah i thought it was interesting that they even because that was one of my questions when I first started reading it. I was like, well, what happens if, you know, one accidentally crosses over? And, and the fact that they're, like, driving parallel, like, what about accidents? How do they avoid accidents? So yeah, I, it seems I, impossible. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, true, so true somehow, madness. Right. So it's okay to... So the idea of seeing, I think, is is an interesting choice of words because they have to be able to see it, but they have to uh, erase it immediately from their senses right? Um, upon seeing it. So I find that really fascinating, that idea. Yeah, it's real ignorance of your surroundings. Um, then critically, the next paragraph, or next page, sorry. In seconds, the breach came. So the breach came. The one entity, I guess. Shapes figures, some of whom perhaps had been there, but who nonetheless seemed to coalesce from spaces between smoke from the accident, moving too fast, it seemed to be clearly seen, moving with authority and power so absolute that within seconds they had controlled, contained the area of the intrusion. The powers were almost impossible, seemed almost impossible to make out, at the edges of the crisis zone, the Bez and I could still not fail to see it. Old Quoman police were pushing away the curious in their own cities, taping off, blah, blah, blah. And then the words at the end, the breach was organizing and cauterizing and restoring. Um, about a dozen things we could unpack there. I guess the first thing I'd say is I think maybe I misspoke earlier and misread. Uh, they're not made of smoke. He does treat them like people. So, yeah, I mean, I knew it shadow, was a thinking shadow figures. Yeah, it was a thinking feeling entity. I guess I maybe had overread that term about smoke because I had interpreted them as kind of like ghost smoke creatures. Maybe they look like people. I don't, it's hard to say. 
<laughs> yeah, the the way that I read it is that they are people, but because each side is trained to unsee, that's yeah. why they are not clearly seen. <laughs> Um, because they're they're in that area of breach, they work within the breach, and they're not supposed to be able to be seen. Yeah, yeah, maybe then that'll be that'll tie into Orson in some way. Um, yeah, love the cauterize at the end. That does yeah. that does I think hit the perfect eeriness without being heavy handed, <laughs> which I think summarizes a lot of the first half of the story so far. Unsettled, mm-hmm. little strange, little creepy, but not like disturbing. So, you know, there's their cauterize the space. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no problem at all. No big deal. Any other thoughts on that section or breach? Uh, nope, I'm Again, good. clear sight we get of it. Um, let's jump to the next section then when you're ready. All right, chapters eight and nine. <clears throat> Borlu is told by his commanding officer that he is to back off of the Gary case as breach will be taking it over soon, but Borlu continues to investigate anyway. He finally gets in touch with Professor Nancy, Mahalia's PhD advisor, and finds out that Mahalia's PhD work has been good enough. Likely not the best she could do, but that she has not pursued the research into Orsini, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, he also finds out more about Professor Bowden, who wrote about Orsini and is the inspiration for Mahalia's in- initial interest in it. He has uh, disavowed his earlier work, however. Borlu gets a call from one of the officers guarding the Geary's. Mr. Geary snuck out and was caught by Breach. He's now in a kind of coma? We're not sure. Um, And both he and Mrs. Geary are being deported back to America. Mrs. Geary accuses Borlu of not caring, of not doing his job, which is why Mr. Geary wanted to take matters into his own hands. She plays with a piece of paper but doesn't offer it to Borlu, who sneakily (coughs) retrieves the paper... And takes Corwi to investigate the address, which is to the headquarters of the True Citizens. Yeah, nationalists. <laughs> yep, a, a barely legal group of extremists who don't want unification. Uh, when they go to ask questions, the members are vaguely threatening and not at all inclined to answer questions. And then a fancy lawyer, Gauz, who Borlu yeah. suspects was sent by the politician Seder shows up and tries to intimidate Borlu into leaving the true citizens alone. Yeah. This is when we get into some real kind of I don't, archetype might not be the word, but genre, traditional genre detective cop stuff. It's like cops arguing with citizens, heckling them, trying to get them to talk. Cops arguing with lawyers. <laughs> like, they're detectives, you know, bantering back and forth, trying to discern things and get people to slip up. Like, that that exchange at the end felt very cop fiction to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, uh, what stood yeah, out to you about this one? Um, so there was some more direct contact with Breach, which was the one that we kind of hinted around. Um... Uh, which I, I just love how ambiguous that all is. I just I love the ambiguity here and the subtlety in his writing. But I also wanted to point out <clears throat> um, with the, the, some of the the back and forth between the the true citizens and um, Borlu. Um, afterwards, when they're leaving, Borlu says, "We were fishing a bit cheeky, though I wasn't expecting to be spanked like quite such a naughty boy." Um, and that's in response to. Um, being schooled by the the lawyer there, Gauze. Um, and I just liked it because that was such a, a very detective-y line. And he doesn't have a whole bunch of, like, dialogue where it's, like, super 
like uh, campy detective. Yeah. But that line made me think, oh, that, there it is. That's kind of a nice little. I liked it. I, I thought that was a nice little line to throw in there for him. Yeah. Yeah. There's some banter that, again, I think is playing up the it's playing with the genre tropes, but doing it well. And it's not hitting you over the head with it. I think it also helps to have that really intriguing second layer sci fi ish, fantasy ish, (laughs) surreal, weird fiction layer on top, at least helps me anyway. That keeps my brain turning. But just some of the dialogue here. Corwee responds to the lawyer. Damn, boss, you were right. She said without lowering her voice. They're batshit. And so just, you know. She, you know, we know she loves to curse at that point, but just giving her a little back and forth <laughs> of the lawyer. And then, you know, they're arguing logistics. And he says, how would you know all that, Mr. Goes, about her work? Her research, please, even without the newspapers ferreting around, PhD topics, conference papers, and state secrets, Borloo. They're not state secrets. There's a thing called the Internet. You should try it. And then he says, just go. And then he ends it. I thought this was a nice little twist. Which paper did you read? I said with a raised voice. I kept my eyes on Goes, but turned my head enough to show I was talking to the men in the doorway. Big man haircut. Which paper? That's enough now, the cop-haired one said, as Muscles told me. What? You said you read in a paper about her. Which one? Far as I know, no one's mentioned her real name yet. And so, you know, he's trying to needle them. He's trying to use his investigative knowledge to just pull something out. And it was a nice exchange. Not too heavy-handed, but kind of fun and bantery and has just enough tension, I think. And you're right it's not overplaying anything not overstating mm-hmm. much which is good yeah um, I'm, I'm enjoying the writing yeah definitely and i do you read a lot of detective fiction i just assume not no i don't um but i i have read a few but yeah generally speaking no yeah even in television not a genre i love i know people get yeah. really obsessive about what crime like csi crime investigative shows those are the longest mm-hmm. running right aren't those the most beloved shows yep. so yeah i think anyway oh, ncis yeah mm-hmm. i remember the board game yeah svu <laughs> oh god i do remember that board game the game that plays itself the ultimate board game in a in a way i don't know <laughs> uh, anecdote for another time but that was hilarious one of those classic truly yeah can't breathe type of hilarious moments like just so insanely (laughs) stupid uh do not buy the ncis board game that's the that's the short version (laughs) or or do i don't know we we, i cried laughing or whatever so what can you do all right next section let's jump to chapters 10 and 11 finally a huge twist in the case gets dropped on us and it's and there's much hullabaloo about it and a lot of fucks and a lot of cursing (laughs) um news video surveillance footage has been found and it shows that the van that dropped this poor woman off dead did not breach it crossed legally via is it where are we going with copula copula hall I said, yeah, Copula. Copula. It's basically a shared city hall. It is one of the few buildings that uh, gross topically is identical. (laughs) This is one of the Mm -hmm. few buildings between the two cities that is literally the same space that even different citizens share the building. And so it's kind of where they come together. It's where the committee meeting was. It's also, uh, yeah, apparently where there's like one road or highway that they allow to be a legal crossing. He calls it a... It's like in a time... What are those time glasses called? Sand... Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Hourglass. Hourglass. Yeah, I was like, I can picture it perfectly. (laughs) It's like the middle point of an hourglass. Like, it's the one funnel that they can go through. Anyway... So that now means that breach will not be invoked because there was no breach. There was a legal crossing. 
It also means that Burlow is now headed over to Oklahoma as a consultant, since there's now it's an it, they call it an international investigation. These are again different city states or whatever, and he will not be a, a cop anymore. They strip his gun later, in fact, but he's going to consult with the detectives there and try and help give him his knowledge. He'll also notably be without Corwy, which. It's implying heavily that will matter because they even develop a secret code (laughs) between each other to, like, update about the case and stuff. Anyway, and so Mm -hmm. he's not going to have a lot of power in Ulquoma, but he's going. Um, After returning to the van's driver and trying to shake him down a bit and pressure him, they do figure out that he had a cross-border pass in the car, which is a very rare item. It's a commodity that not everyone would have for sure. It also leads them to figure out that it's quite possible and quite likely that the van stealers were visa hunting. So they were like searching for a van they knew would already have a pass in it. Again, a pretty rare thing. And they would need access to privileged information to figure that out. And because of all this new stuff, and it's a lot of correlations, it's a lot of things they haven't proven, but have started to put together. Corwy and Borlo decide not to share the information with anybody else, not their bosses, not anyone. And so at this point, they're kind of concerned because they think there might be big conspiracies at play and they're the only two people they can trust. So that's where we kind of leave off. What did you note here about mood and tone? You got something? Yeah, and it's, uh, I guess, like the same page that you kind of noted. So it's a quote real quick. Um, It was a question that did not at that point mean anything, Mm. which the question was, where does this go? It was merely to fill the near noiselessness in the office to cover up what uh, noises there were that sounded baleful and suspicious. Each tick and creak of plastic and electronic ears momentary feedback, each small knock of the building, the shift in position of a sudden intruder. Um, I liked that because it, it builds up some of that suspense and some of the the nervousness and the anxiety that Borlu feels because he doesn't know who to trust and and he's in a foreign country at this point so yeah or will be yeah yeah this yeah. is headed into one yeah so I, I i just liked that little that and it's such a short paragraph but it was just so full of words like intruder and and the the creaking and the noises and and you and you're trying to cover the noiselessness but also the noise so i just thought that was a really nice paragraph yeah their exchange too i I will say that her swearing i don't know if i'd say (laughs) graded on me after a while i thought it was almost kind of silly maybe it's playing up that meant to be charming but there's some exchanges between them here that I, I think they have that kind of matter-of-factness of cops without being too cliche, which is nice. She just says, so what do we do? It was unsettling to hear alarm like that in Corey's voice. I guess what we've been doing, we investigate. I shrug slowly. We have a crime to solve. We don't know who it's safe to talk to, boss, anymore. No, there was nothing else I could say suddenly. So maybe you don't talk to anyone except me. They're taking me off the case. What can I... Just answer your phone. If there's stuff I can get you to do, I'll call. And so there, it's not too heavy-handed or cliched even some of the lines like we got we investigate we got a crime to solve even that feels a little because it's you know him shrugging him kind of stammering a little bit like him not having answers it's there's just a cadence to it that this is always a hard to define and hard to sort of qualify thing but there are some authors who just write dialogue I don't know if this is like full naturalistic style, but it definitely has a cadence that avoids cliches and makes things seem. I, yeah, it avoids the the kind of detective, bland, easy platitudes. Mm-hmm. I guess that would make it boring, <laughs> or at least like I yeah. would be I would be rolling my eyes and be like, oh god, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that the dialogue does help with that because the of the stammering and the you could almost feel them sometimes like talking over each other in certain ways. Like I, I think that that helps um, with making it seem less cliched in some ways. Yeah, yeah, and it's a genre I don't indulge in pretty much ever. So maybe this stuff reads. But even I'm picking up on that's the thing. Even I'm picking up on some of the I don't know tropes you'd say of the of the genre. So just the kind of hard-headed detective who just won't quit <laughs> and so yeah but I, I i think those hopefully that exchange like that kind of shows why it feels so seamless and also is not bogging itself down with with heavy handedness it's it's got a nice flow the characters are like well realized well balanced and everything so let's jump to the final section final section yeah yeah chapters 12 and 13 um, Borlu goes through a two-day visa process to get into Ilkoma, which is mostly just reversing the unseen process. He finally meets Dot, who is in charge of the investigation on the, on the Ilkoma side. He eventually reveals that Mahalia's best friend, Yolanda Rodriguez, has disappeared, though he really doesn't want to call it that. Um, mm-hmm. Dot seems almost reluctant to do the investigation into Mahalia's murder, so he seems a bit slow to get things started, like visiting the dig site that she worked at. So Borlu, who calls Corwi to keep her updated by using coded phrases, because maybe somebody's listening in, um, mm-hmm. visits the site at night and is accosted by police officers who escort him back to the hotel. Dot is upset, though he doesn't really want to show it, and finally takes Borlu to interview Mahalia's professors and classmates at the dig site. Nothing is really said aside from Mahalia's interest in Orsini and a kind of strange interaction with the guard Akam Sue. Yeah. I come Sue. I mean, Sue would be probably too. I'm mushing that too much. Yeah. I from I come I come sway I I come sway yeah I come sway sure yeah yeah. <laughs> would you Would you note here in this section? Um, I noticed so. Um, Mieville in this book doesn't necessarily like. Like, the descriptions that I've read thus far have been really short and, like, single, like, simple sentences, really short. The paragraphs are super short. And it's more, and it's less detailed and more, um, almost like mood and tone building. So there's not a whole lot of uh, imagery necessarily that's going on, like, direct imagery like that. However, um, on page 149, when he starts describing the, the dig site, actually, it does get into some details and I'm just yeah. wondering why, um, because it's it's a break, it's a difference in the way that he's been kind of writing the book thus far. Yeah. So he goes to to talk about the different layers and describing the layers and stuff, and it's just I found that interesting that it's so different from the rest of the rest of the way that he's been writing. Yeah, I think the dig site, which they, they kind of up to this point in the book, dance around a lot, and it's obviously crucial to why she was there, why uh, Mahalia, Mahalia, Mahalia was there. And so I, given that and the reference, given that they don't know what the culture is at the dig site, they have no idea where it's from. They say it's pre, 
what do they call it? Connection. There's some word they use for free cleavage. Cleavage. There you go. I was like, there's some word they use proper noun for when the city split or stayed. And so they they don't know which culture this is. It's unlike any other culture they've found on Earth. And so they're unclear. I feel like if it's going to somehow tie that into Orsini, which makes some sense. I don't know how they would do it, but it makes sense to do it. I feel like that's probably why it wants to give you a quite a clear moment of observation in that place. Maybe there's some clues in there where we should unpack or something. <laughs> something we're underestimating. But no, it's it's noteworthy for sure. Yeah, I feel like it's it's either going to be like evidence of Orsini or and if or or perhaps also uh, the the murder site itself maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's some nice world building again here. We've been complimenting that a lot, but it's pretty strong throughout, of course. And so a couple things. Let's observe his time in Ulquoma. This is obviously he's quite a fish out of water. He'd only been once in his life before this, <laughs> Burlow, so this is a big deal. He says things like, and this is on 143, he says, Where were Ulquoma's brothels? Near what Bazel neighborhoods? I policed a music festival once early in my career in a cross-hatched park where the attendees got high in such numbers that there was so much public fornication. My partner at the time and I had not been able to forbear amusement at the Ulquoman passerby we tried not to see in their iteration of the park, stepping daintily over fucking couples they assiduously unsaw. I considered taking the subway, which I never had. There's nothing like it in Bazell, but it was a good thing to walk. I tested my Illatan in conversations I overheard. I saw the groups of old Quomans unsee me because of my clothes and the way that I held myself. Double take and see my visitor's mark see me. That sentence is rhetorically like, again, that's... <laughs> I'm so glad yep. the novel I've come around on because that sentence is exhausting <laughs> if you don't understand <laughs> what's happening. Um, there were groups of young old Quomans outside amusement arcades that rang with sound. I looked at, could see gas rooms, small vertically oriented blimps contained with integuments of girders once urban crow's nest to guard against attack for many decades now architectural nostalgias quiche or kitsch sorry kitsch very different word than a quiche <laughs> kitsch <laughs> these days used to dangle advertisements so it's I th- do you feel like you have a better sense of which city at this point because it, it is when he transitions into Oklahoma, obviously quite logically well observed you know you get a sense of like just the daily life he goes in on the architecture we talked about or alluded to mm-hmm. that I, and I feel like I almost know less about Bazell in a way although I get the kind of grimy industrial vibe of that place too um, yeah just a really meaningful early arrival I feel like the, the world building at that point is really amped up in its clarity and pace maybe just because yeah. i guess we need a story to keep moving and we're halfway through the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> so maybe that's why he wrote it that way but I, I appreciate it it's in a positive way it again was doing the thing that i maybe thought the first half needed more of to to say it one way well yeah now that he's you know he's from bazel so he doesn't feel the need to describe stuff but then in ilcoma where he can finally really look at stuff and he's like fascinated by it i i enjoy yeah i think that that was a good call to get more descriptive of that world yeah yeah and it's the contrast how final question maybe before we jump into our segments at the end do you feel like there's a clear contrast between the cities and if so how would you summarize it because it's the part of the writing when it's being immersive, slow, subtle, I know there's differences and I could name some. I don't know if he's fully earned that these are like enemy places of profound difference and, and 
perhaps that's going to be thematically the point <laughs> by the end. Yeah. But it's what do you think about the differences so far? Yeah, I think that thematically that's what it is. is it's all superficial differences. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, because he talks about like the differences in the buildings, well, like one is more like squarish and one has more like scrolls. Mm-hmm. And the the colors are more muted in Bizelle, um, but then there's certain colors in Ulkoma that you can only wear in Ulkoma and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Those are it's such superficial differences for sure. Yeah, we'll see how much that matters. We'll see if this Orsini myth brings them all together. Harmony at last. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Orsini <knows>? slash Breach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Breach folks will be like, no, guys, we have, like, the Illuminati. We've been hiding this the whole time. <laughs> yeah. That's our bad. They do They do directly reference that, too. It's been kind of funny seeing... It's been kind of funny seeing references to the, you know, the real world in this world, because there's really no... It seems like very little... Or, sorry, very few other differences between our world and theirs <laughs> other than just this mm-hmm. cross hatching thing that happens yeah anyway um let's jump into our final segments then amanda let's make a list shall we <laughs> the first of our part one segments because list making is so popular we've created a top three list for the first half of this book you themed it so i'll have you start us off amanda what are we listing um, the top three references to show that the story is not set in America. Yeah, so right on. What you, yeah, how you know it's not American. Yep. <laughs> um, so my number three is the language. Um, there's examples of language, um, and he talks about how it's different. And also, not everyone is fluent in English, and he even says that when the Geary's come over, who are American, he switches to English, and he's... Yeah. he's having to he's having some he's not as fluent in it as he would like to be yeah yeah that's a good one too that we spoiled my number one but i'll i'll save it (laughs) i would say (laughs) my number three is the names i read these earlier there were some street names in there it's very i'm not a linguist by trade or study or anything really but it, it feels very russian to me and there's also been what i would call and man this is talk about it going wide generalization don't cancel me but there's been some asian influence um to what i can tell from again my non-knowledge like maybe chinese because there's some yi's like yees and mm-hmm. t's in there which again i'm not i've never studied the the formalization of those languages but it those are the two that i've noticed so maybe russian maybe a little chinese but yeah the the pol the police or polizikai also the cz combo that's i mean that's literally in the name czechoslovakia so yeah i think just the naming of things that to me has felt very but it also feels grounded that's i think maybe an impressive feat this book's pulling off is it's got obviously a very trippy <laughs> premise that we're trying to understand but it does feel grounded mm-hmm. um my number two is references to canada where it seems like they like the Canadians better, mm-hmm. at least that there's better political relations with Canada, yep. <laughs> which comes from, in, in my own, you know, world trotting, the Canadians have much better reputations than Americans do. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Like, of course, the Canadians are, you know, <laughs> better put better in the story than Americans It's great. Yeah, very charming. <laughs> and it also is a nice little political twist because 
it sort of makes a reference to, I forgot how they worded it, but there's sort of a reference to like, well, and they're benefiting from it. Like because they reached out and took an interest earlier, there's some stronger, maybe economic ties to old Cuomo or something, or like there's more development mm-hmm. now that's Canadian. So it's, you know, shows, shows some kind of interwoven, intertangled, that's even a word, ideas there, um, politics, yeah. economics. My number two is that <laughs> there's a really clear interest and respect for predecessor cultures, let's say, <laughs> cultures that came before the one that you're a part of. Now, obviously, there's some mm. thematics of happening here because there's clearly such crossover between these two places, but they're they're foreign to each other. Um, but, like, for example, the, just the dig site, the way it's treated, America does not have a lot of things like that. We, we like museums, I guess. And we do some archaeology. I guess we've got some... some. Uh, do we have dinosaur archaeology here? I don't even know. <laughs> I'm sure we've got a couple of Montana <laughs> dig sites. But other than protecting natural forests, which I would say we've done admirably, that's like our probably biggest kind of preservation accomplishment, we don't, we've not exactly been uh, the most thoughtful caretakers of Native American history. I don't know why I even said predecessor. I guess it's the comparison <laughs> point, but that's what I mean. <laughs> like, yeah. that's... Yeah. Uh, that is, that's not a a thing we've upheld our end on. So that I think Mm -hmm. was a pretty clear sign. Europe has that grasp. That's a great one. Yeah. They have that grasp and preservation of history that America just doesn't seem to care as much about. Yeah. Well, America's a lot younger too. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, My number one is um, the references to Turkish coffee, especially because they have such disgust for the American style. Yeah coffee like Corby was like oh what is this trash and he's like uh, whatever but yeah the the Turkish coffee for me was like number one that's a good one too <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought of that it's subtle I mean they also drink <laughs> tea as a habit it's a good sign you're not in mm-hmm. America right yeah <laughs> so my number one though you again spoiled in a very fun way it's the reason we know we're not in America is because the Americans we get are so damn American. <laughs> That's how we know they're quite boorish uh, to the point of literal disaster of tr- almost tragedy. Like it's fitting that her parents, uh, Mahalia's parents who come in from America, they literally bulldoze their way into a breach. The The parent is ex-military, of course, another perfectly American trope. Way to go mm-hmm. to our military budget this year, hitting those trillions. Uh, and yeah, so it's like fitting enough that he, yeah, he just like charges in and kind of I don't even I don't remember the technicalities just that they get kicked out they're there for like 12 hours <laughs> they, yeah, they, come they in, weren't even there a full day yeah, yeah they come in ask a bunch of questions <laughs> don't really engage with the cultural training they're given and then literally cause an international incident disaster and then get kicked out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is yep. how I know the story does not take place in America so <laughs> <laughs> a pretty rich example I wanted to analyze that earlier, but I knew it was going to come up in the list. So what did you make of that? (laughs) I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And it also is like um, such a a trope even in American detective stories. Right. But the what usually happens is that it gets the detective even more um, heated and the detective will also break rules and laws in order to. To, to get that done, but Borloo is like, nope, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm not going to be breached. I'm going to follow the rules and do it my own way, but yeah. follow the rules. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're pretty kind to the parents. That's another part that I thought was subtle and I wouldn't say went against genre expectation, but they didn't give them a full shakedown or they didn't have a screaming match when they kind of apprehended them and caught them. It was more of like, we understand you're traumatized, but also this is horrible. You got to go. It was... Yeah, there's another scene where I think it could have been amped up to, you know, have Borlo be dominating or have more argument or cursing. But it was kind of just like, man, these people are fucked up and they cannot be here. This is too, <laughs> there's too much delicate chaos that could happen with breaching that we they have to go. So anyway, yeah, a good sign. All right, final segment then, shall we? Let's end this one. Yeah. Uh, please continue make it stop is always our final podcast segment on part ones it's exactly what it sounds like we're each going to give one element of the story that we'd like to continue and one we'd like to make it stop kick us off amanda either's fine um i will say my please continue is how muddled everything is Mm -hmm. i i have an idea of how things are but also i i don't um so i like the subtleties i love the mystery Mm -hmm. and i like that everything is just cloaked in mystery because we're outsiders and and we are meant to feel like outsiders and i like that a lot yeah that's so my make it stop Uh, Is kind of that, though, I will say now that I know that the author has a confident hand in doling things out and explaining when he must, I'm not as concerned about that, though. My make it stop was kind of to do away with some of these unseeing moments to make them a little less confusing. Then again, though, now that I have just a grasp on that, I can't really make that my make it stop anymore because now I'm like, okay, I'm on board. (laughs) I trust Mm -hmm. that if something is really weird or baffling that at some point we'll get not an explanation, but at least a contextualization. Um, so my make it stop, I'm going to simplify just to like, I don't think I quite get Ulquoma yet as like a city, as a culture, as like, I wish the differences again, I don't need them to be more profound. I think that's going to be one of the themes or thematic points, but I just would like, I don't know in those sections when he was in the city, just more of that, I guess weird mm-hmm. request because mm-hmm. he's done it, <laughs> but I, I just want more. So <laughs> like it's more of a make it stop, more of like a wish or hope. Yeah, I got so, you. Yeah. And um, how about for your please continue? Uh, well, that my please continue was a subtlety. My my make it stop is, um, and he doesn't do it often. It's just when he actually like kind of dis- explains something in in great detail about the world, um, like when he crossed into um, Ulquoman, it was just like very much matter of fact just details about the world but not in like a descriptive way but in just Mm. an expository way and he doesn't do it often it's only been like maybe two or three times that he's done it yeah but but i just so prefer the 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 subtleties that he uses otherwise so yeah and i think it's been a nice balancing act once i got over those first Maybe it was just that reading session I put in. Now that I just think more about it, I'm like, I think that first time I picked it up, I just wasn't in the right space or something. I don't know what was going Mm. on. But that committee meeting turned me around totally. I don't know what it was. The clarity of it. There's that breach scene right after, which I was like, okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) I get it, (laughs) kind of, sort of. Anyway, and some of the vocab clicks into place at that point, but no, that's that's well said. My please continue is that I will just say... 
I, I think he's doing the right level of grimy setting, but it's b- balanced and realistic and kind of fair, a weird judgmental word to use. I think the detectiveness of it is just just right. It's like um, I think back to a movie like Seven, which is just so dripping, drenched, mm. gloomy. I mean, and it works. Obviously, that movie ends in just an insane, unhinged manner. <laughs> so it's like it's yeah. all fine and good, and it does its job. But I, I like this version, and I think the fact that it's clearly going to delve more into politics in the second half, I enjoy too, because it hasn't made either place seem ludicrous. Um, and I right. think the cadence of the the even the dialogue but as i say the cadence of the plot conflict kind of doling things out it's it's been a nice balance it keeps you engaged and it's not hitting you over the head with anything so i just think the kind of style of political slash detective intrigue it's building is nice it's a good well-struck kind of combo yeah i agree yeah that's my that's my Please continue. Just that, keep this genre balance that he's struck going. Um, any final thoughts on the novel so far? Uh, nope. Yeah, a strong start for sure. I mean, let's not bother to compare to our previous book. Really doesn't even, <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> no need to do that. Doesn't even really matter. But yes, this has been really an enjoyable ride and um, a good reminder of the kind of, also, let's. I will say this in terms of a redemption arc. This is the kind of thing I was hoping for when I picked the Midnight Library. So true redemption, because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, you could, obviously the, the crux and sci-fi-ish premise matters immensely to this, but it's so detective-y and new, not, maybe not noir-ish, but it's pretty fiction detective style. And so I think it's accessible. I don't know. We'll leave that up to our ultimate recommendation to decide that, but it does feel like it's it's just got that twist that I love. It's it's realistic, sure. It's grounded, sure. But it has that one thing that builds my interest and keeps me hooked. It's kind of what I need. And yeah, no final. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's I I've really enjoyed it too. It's it's such a nice. I I find with um, science fiction and fantasy stuff too. It's it's sometimes it can be overwhelming to read because mm-hmm. of the world building aspects. But so far, I've really enjoyed how he's handled that. So yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, definitely. We don't need hundreds of pages of world building for all <laughs> yeah. of these types of fiction. <laughs> this is a very yep. efficient and impressive vehicle. Okay, um, with that said about The City in the City by Chani Mieva, let's wrap this up. This was obviously our part one book club episode. If you're listening to this on the day it was released, then expect part two next Friday. If you're just back in our archives, which you know we hope you are, we'll leave all of our episodes up for your exploration, then just go click on part two, which is probably posted by now. We appreciate you listening all the way through. If you enjoyed the episode or enjoyed the discussion, leave a like and, I guess, subscription if you can on whatever po- podcast platform you're on. We're up on Google, Spotify, Apple, the bi- the major providers, <laughs> the big ones. We project it out, you know, into the ether of the internet. So, yeah, do that. Uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. Speaking of in- internet, uh, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So check us out there. Give us a follow. And until next time... We'll see you between the pages. 